You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Rocha. I'm Aprom Kivalevich, who's standing in two worlds. I'm here with Dr. Sam Judy from Yerushalayim, and I'm also joined by my colleague and good friend, the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva of Newark, who is also a licensed therapist. Uh, we've had him here before. It's a cover to Adam, Rabbi Shmuel Skate, who is listening here with us, and will be our participants here together. And we're going to try to make this work. Uh, I know the technology, sometimes it's not always our friend, but hopefully uh, the, the technology God will help us. Because what we're going to talk about, I think, today is important to the God, important to us, to the Jewish people, who will comprise most of our listeners we're standing here in the month of Elul, just a couple of, uh, a week or so before Rosh Hashanah, the Yom Adin. And Elul has been, and I'm not sure when it began, but it's uh, definitely for the, the last hundreds of years has been the period that has seen the Jewish people go into a contemplative mode, thinking about what the uh, God wants from them. And specifically, tshuva, to change, not just to wait till Rosh Hashanah, but actually to use this period uh, to get ready to not only have regret and remorse and to think about what we've done wrong, but also to make real commitment uh, to, to look into ourselves and to become really different people. Now, uh, again, the word tshuva, which of course means to return, uh, has been refashioned to mean to find a new self, to find the real self, perhaps the real person. And there are statements that the, we find in classic rabbinic literature, the way they're described by the Rambam and others, that through this process of not only regretting what one has done, commitment to change, uh, the uh, establishment that you are going to be someone different and that statements like the Rambam makes uh, that God himself will say that you are a different person. God will be made. God will testify that you have changed. When tshuva happens, the Rambam says a person is becoming someone else. That yesterday, you see this very famous language of the Rambam in the seventh chapter of Elkut Tshuva. Yesterday, this person was hated by God. He was disgusting. He was so distant and an abomination. And today, because of his change, because of what he's done, seemingly very, very almost transformative into the, into the strongest degree, he's now loved and God, he's close to God, he's someone that you can see. And of course, there are psukim that uh, verses throughout Sifre Tanakh that can back this up. I think probably one of the strongest, uh, I guess, preachers of this idea was Rav Kuksatzal, who talked about this amazing transformation that can occur almost instantaneously if you can touch the right chords within a person's soul. And of course, they base themselves on the Talmud that says a person can be a tzadikomer, even with a thought. So that is really, I think, more or less the idea of the possibility of tshuva, of real change, how a human can become something different and become a, 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 a saint from where he had been a complete sinner. Now, I know I've got Dr. Juni here, and I know that from uh, a, a psychological perspective, this is something that you deal with constantly, 
the idea of people being able to become something different, people changing from their phobias and from their hurts and from the, the damage that they have done in the past to, to live a different type of life. It has ramifications in the legal field, it has ramifications uh, in the political field. I want to ask you, Dr. Sam, how do you buy in? Do you buy into this? Do you believe in it? How can you counsel people who do believe in this? So I'm trying to make the question very focused for you. So, and, and I want to make get that answer right on that point. So go ahead, Dr. Sam. Okay, thank you. Happy to be here. Welcome again, Rabbi Skaist. Okay, let me try to react to this as head-on as I possibly can, given my limitations. Okay, so first disclosure. I am essentially a Freudian and what we call a radical Freudian. I believe that personality is something that forms extremely early in life, actually in early childhood. And I also believe what most practicing psychiatrists believe, that personality does not change ever. Okay, so clinically speaking, the worst patient that you can ever have a referral from is somebody with a um, personality disorder. And the, I always warn my students, don't take them because it will not work. You'll never be able to change them. Now, at the same time, I have to say that I do believe in CBT. I do believe in behavioral therapy, which means I believe people can change their behaviors very well. And under guidance, under professional guidance, and the split here is basically we have a personality that is us. That is our very nature. We don't change that. Perhaps if you undergo extreme reconstructive therapy, the kind of stuff that Freud fantasized about but never really was able to do, at least the way the data looks, yes, maybe you can do it. But practically speaking, you don't change personality. But yes, you can change your behaviors. So I'm not a rabbi, but I'm aware of the medrash that says that um, certain experts analyzed uh, Moshe Rabbeinu and they said he's a horrible person. Okay, and the idea is, yes, that was his personality, and he was able to change his behavior and his style to the point that became a darling uh, leader of the Jewish people. Now, note that in that medrash, it does not say that Moshe Rabbeinu used to be a terrible person. It said he is a terrible, horrible person, maybe even called butcher or murderer or some really ghastly terms. And I think um, whoever wrote that medrash was a Freudian as well. And the notion is you have a personality, that is what you are. Okay, now, that given, I also am an Orthodox Jew, and I have a lot of the hashkafas from Judaism, from traditional Judaism, that makes me feel that tshuva is an option, etc. So, one easy way out for me, at least in terms of dealing with quite a few religious patients, and I include within that religious fundamental non-Jews, is to make the split, saying, yes, we can definitely help you change your behavior. We can help you behave in a moral way, the way God wants you to behave. And in fact, that's God's mission to you. And from a Musardika perspective, I would say that's your Nisayan. Everybody's born with their peckle. You're given these tools. This is you. And they expect you to act in the, the wills of God. Not that they expect you to have a different personality. They don't expect you to undergo some kind of brain surgery and become somebody else. You are who you are, and yet you are given the koifas to deal with them so you don't behave in that way. And I was just telling the rabbi before, I have this classic case of a very good friend of mine who is a very um, giving, concerned person. He would get up in the middle of the night to help anybody, 
he is um, kind, he is um, overly generous, and yet he told me a situation where he was once stuck late at night and he got some lonely farmer two o'clock in the morning to open up a gas station for him and he got gas and I asked him, how much of a tip did you give? And he said, well, why should I give a tip? I'll never see the person again. Okay, and this is coming from someone who, as far as I'm concerned, is a tzaddik, but yet his personality, as far as I'm concerned, is not a personality of tzaddikus at all. So, um, so to, to flesh it out some more, people come to me with various kinds of illnesses and phobias and maladjustments, and one of the common things I do after I put them on medication is to send them to behavioral therapists. Now, I don't believe behavioral therapists ever change the essence of a person. I think somebody who is afraid will continue being afraid. Somebody who is mean will continue being mean. Somebody who is greedy will continue being greedy. Somebody who has a temptation to philander will continue with that temptation. But behavioral therapy can change all those things so that they behave in a way that doesn't make you feel guilty and doesn't make you feel that you're doing something wrong. But if you really want to obsess about it, you still feel that your inside inclinations are not that way. So coming to change and tshuva. Yes, I believe you can do tshuva. Yes, I believe you can resolve and effectively stay with any commitments you have to change your behavior, to change your style, and to change the way you interact with others or with yourself or with God. Can you ever change yourself around? Can you become another person? I have to say that I believe you cannot. With the reservation that I am not an expert on normal people except by fantasy. I deal with people who are disordered. And my challenge has always been, can we help them? But to say a normal person has normal vices and normal desires and normal nisyoinus, can I say based on the data that I know that they cannot change? I can't say that. Do I believe that in all my professional heart that they cannot change? Yes, I believe that. So can you do tshuva? My short answer is practically yes, essentially no. And I hope that people that are, that are hearing this are not uh, dismayed uh, from what you're saying. I think you are, in a way, giving a, a, a strong sense of hope because clearly, whether even though you've been dealing with people that are disturbed, anyone can take a lesson that... Behavior can be reined in. Behavior can, you, you can use uh, various methodologies to, to stop yourself from doing whatever it was. People go on diets constantly. People are able uh, to remember because, and it really comes from, a, I don't know if it's a Pavlovian type of response, but they know that this makes them feel bad. This makes the other person feel bad. They're able to work on change based on, well, if I act in a negative way, this is what happens. People are disappointed in me. <clears throat> I feel guilty about myself. So I can stop doing that because I don't want to have those feelings. And, and, and that, I, I think, is, is a positive. It is a, a style of tshuva in a way that you've altered your behavior and you're committed not to do that again because you have a stark remembrance or a stark feeling within yourself of what is going to happen when that occurs. So it's sort of like you don't want to have the electric shock occur to you because you don't want to slip back. 
But you are, and just to reiterate on what you said, the idea of what the Rambam seems to indicate, that you are a different person, uh, that you are not the same person. Uh, there you feel that we have to be cautious and and, 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 and not stating that. What I, what I would just say to that is, um, and, and I think that what you're saying is not bad, but I think it sort of closes off this idea of complete tshuva me'ahava, the idea of being able to to find your neshama within tshuva, to be able to find the essence of your soul, which is, of course, so pure, and it can transform, meaning, yes, your your tendency is to be an angry person. Your tendency might be to, to lose your temper. By the way, it's not really a medrash, what you were quoting about with Moshe Rabbeinu. The Terence Yisrael mentions it. Um, I, I don't believe it really has the authenticity of the medrash, but let's say even assuming it does, that there is this idea of Moshe being this, 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 this teva anger, that anger can become transmuted into something so holy that, it's, that it has aspects of anger in it, but it's only for holiness. Um, it, it's, you know, as, as the Gemara says, if someone feels they, they, they have a tendency, they love bloodshed, they can become the greatest shochet in the world. <laughs> so there is this idea of, 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 of moving and transforming. I want to bring in my, my, my rabbi colleague, Rabbi Skate. You have been involved not only in, with Bali Tshuva and, and thinking about this and dealing with this with our, with our students, and I know that this is something that, 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 that you could probably weigh in for us as well. Uh, the, let's say in between what I am saying, which is sort of like this, perhaps unrealistic, but, but belief in the soul to Dr. Juni's belief, the Freudian personality. Where do you come in on this? Well, first of all, I, I would have to say that anyone who, who works with Bale Chuva beyond just sending them to some program and sending them or sending them to Israel, uh, but actually works with them over the course of years and follows their progress through becoming from would 100% agree that personalities do not change. Uh, I've worked with many Bali Chuva and I've never seen one become from and suddenly become a different person. The same uh, personality traits that they had when they were not from are still 100% there when they become from. So I think actually that uh, that sort of proves <laughs> what Dr. Juni is saying. They may change their actions. They change the fact that they're now observant of mitzvahs and, and their hashkafas change accordingly, but personalities, not at all. So in that sense, I, I, I agree with Dr. Juni. I also wanted to mention about the Medrash, about Moshe Rabbeinu, only because I recently read a piece by Schneer Lyman where he pretty much decisively disproves that, that it was actually a Medrash. Uh, I think it was originally, he found a, a, source, a much earlier source that uh, says that it was about Aristotle, and somehow somebody decided it was a good idea to say it about Moshe Rabbeinu. And probably, if you think about it, the person that had that idea was trying to do something positive. They're trying to be encouraging. They're trying to convince people like, you know, you can change. You can change. And, and I'm sort of in, in, in between. I agree with Dr. Juni that personality can change uh, to some extent. But I think there's some, I, I want to be more specific. And, I, I, and Dr. Judy, you talked about uh, behavioral therapy and, and, and the behaviorists and so on. And I'm not sure if where this falls on the spectrum, but I think that we can change our relationship to our own thoughts and feelings, right? Which is, which is sort of what CBT does or there's other approaches, mindfulness, uh, whatever, right? And so I think it seems to me that over a period of time, if somebody changes their relationship 
in a deep way. I'm not talking about just, you know, dealing with a phobia or dealing with something very simple. But, uh, you know, let's say somebody um, has an experience where they're, they're, they're constantly defensive. You know, they're, they're just all, they always feel like they're being attacked, right? This is a common thing. Um, or they never feel good enough. And they really get in touch with how their brain works and what's going on in, in their minds. And they really spend uh, years Rec- learning to recognize those feelings, learning to recognize how they arise, and really changing their relationship to that, to those feelings. So you might be right that those feelings will always still come up because of their personality. But if their uh, relationship to those feelings and therefore reaction to those feelings changes so completely, where it's not just uh, you know a um, okay, I know I have to do this, but but they, they, it becomes part of who they are. Wouldn't you uh, uh, say that that might constitute at least partial personality uh, modification? Maybe you want, maybe change is too strong a word? Okay, so let me just comment on that. I basically set up straw tiger as a contrast to, to the standard psychoanalytic theory, and I was thinking more of the classic theories of conditioning by Skinner, who had not, no concern at all about personality, had concern about behavior. What you're referring to, Rabbi, is a step in the middle which basically has become the official dictum of cognitive behavioral therapists today. And the important step came when they changed the term behavioral therapy and concatenated it with the adjective of cognitive behavior, which means it's your thoughts in the, concerning the behaviors that are more crucial than the behavior itself. And the, a, a parallel um, approach, which also was very important, was Albert Ellis's approach, which rational emotive therapy. In other words, it's the rational thinking. It's the way you approach and organize yourself towards your emotions that really should be the crux of change rather than the rather simplistic notion of just um, conditioning a certain behavior one way or the other. So that is the other side. And with all that, I have to say, that I still see both of those as paling in comparison to the traditional psychoanalytic approach that you really don't change anything at all, and that even your rational thoughts are only artifacts of your emotions, which are mired in personality. So yes, on a practical level, trying to at least compromise this view that it shouldn't be so radical, that is much closer to how people feel about themselves intuitively, and yes, it definitely is possible to change your emotional reactions and your rational aspects of how you go on. Yes, there's much more latitude there. So, but I'm just saying as a purist in touch from the MS, I don't think the personality changes, but no, it's not like saying if your personality doesn't change, then all you can change is your behavior. Not correct. You can change your stance. You can change your attitude. You can change your relationships. Yes, those are all optional, and they don't really contradict the psychoanalytic understanding that personality doesn't change. Personality is much more than those, but those are much more than just behavior. Okay. Uh, I'm going to push back with one, one other question from a little bit of a different angle, and that is, wouldn't you agree that what we are missing here and the missing piece that I think Freudians do not have is a theory of consciousness? So a theory of personality is, you're right, it is deeper than what I, was, what I was referring to, but ultimately it does not take into consideration what consciousness actually is. And when you get to a discussion of change and free will and so on, and we're not specifically talking about free will, but certainly the jury is out because we don't have a 
theory of consciousness at all. And we've only begun to discuss it in the last 10, 20 years. Before that, it was pretty much unacceptable, certainly by Freudians, to discuss consciousness. Okay, so this is basically a very threatening question to me, and I'll tell you why. Because I am very much of an empiricist, and I'm very much involved in actual research, besides just sitting on my expensive armchair and thinking about things. So the truth is that the data, especially from the neuropsychological field, especially dealing with people who've had various kinds of um, brain trauma and have had interventions, is that consciousness is a real concept. Okay, from Freudian point of view, consciousness is fantasy. It's an artifact. It's something that we construct post post hoc when we see things happening. We say, okay, there's a consciousness. But basically, the traditional Freudian belief is equivalent to uh, Descartes. The Cartesian point of view is that consciousness means nothing. What we do, let's say, if you take a Jungian perspective, is that this happens and this happens, and then you step back and say, what's going on? You say, okay, I have a subjective feeling of who I am. I know what's going on. But as far as they're concerned, it's baloney. And they have precisely the same kinds of, uh, shall we say, fear in consciousness as somebody like Skinner did. Skinner did not think there's any consciousness at all. They had the old animal theory that we are nothing more than fancy animals or fancy machines, which reduce to the same thing in Cartesian terms. Okay? So I have to say that in terms of my belief system, where I come from, consciousness, I always consider it to be an artifact. But then again, I know exactly what's going on in the field of neurosurgery and that consciousness is not something that we can just blink at. And I also know that the field, let's say, of medical philosophy has turned very much in favor towards the concept of consciousness. There are whole journals devoted to them. There are very real scholars, not phonies, actual scientists who deal with this in a real fashion. So yes, the theoretical position that I kind of mired myself in does not find itself consistent with consciousness. It does not find itself consistent with the concept of free will. Free will meaning that I really have the free will rather than I can box myself in so that I'll be forced to do something. Anybody can put himself into a straitjacket, but it doesn't mean that he has the free will not to move. He has the free will to put himself in a straitjacket, which will then stop him. So that's the way I see it traditionally, but I know that the truth is probably not on my side. <laughs> okay. So I don't know, if, again, if I could just interject here, because I think we've, we've gone into some pretty complex uh, issues and definitions, um, and I know that uh, you know we are the yeshiva of Newark, and, and in many ways, I, I don't want people to think that they've tuned into a TED talk on uh, you know on, on, on theoretical uh, psychology. Uh, although I, I, I am listening here and finding it fascinating, um, I think I guess what we could what we could say here is that uh, you know Dr. Juni is not uh, discounting completely. Uh, the idea of, of Chuva, and in fact, is very wants to encourage it. Um, and however, he is holding a somewhat of a skeptical eye towards some of the statements, especially when we do talk about free will and the ability to be completely how human beings have the ability to become something different, change some, change themselves, and also discovering uh, this, this this pure neshama that can can somehow transform you. You can become, with one act, you can actually change yourself to become something uh, that was different than you were uh, your whole life, as, as we know 
various Sipuri Chazal in that area. So you are cautioning us for that. I would just say one thing to, to Rabbi Skase. I know that we talk about Bali Tshuva. Of course, I've, I have my own dealings with Bali Tshuva. I think many of us would say that, and, and we can say that's the same thing that Dr. Juni was saying about the disturbed population that he was talking about. Are they reflective of the whole, or are they, in a sense, because of where they are, there's certain limitations. If there's someone who we wouldn't say is, is coming from the, um, the, the, the Bali Tshuva uh, crucible or from the, the area of the disturbed, maybe things might work differently for them. There might be some level of pristine Tshuva that we haven't even yet spoken about. Um, again, I'm not trying to put down Bali Tshuva. What I'm saying is many of them come to Judaism out of a whirlwind. They come out of, uh, out of some uh, strong issue that, that has been affecting them, and maybe they're still dealing with that, and this is an option to help rather than some movement towards something great and austere and, and beautiful that, that could actually be real change. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to shift here a little bit. I know, Rabbi Stace, you've been dealing in your, uh, in, in your, in your therapy um, hat as a, as a therapist with ideas of addiction. And I know uh, Dr. Juni has written extensively on it. So why don't you uh, ask Rabbi Juni some of the, the questions and ideas that you had about addiction. And then maybe I, I think this could be uh, a good complement to what we've been talking about. Look, I, I'm certainly not an expert in addictions, but it's very fascinating to me that the current, in terms of uh, addiction treatment, uh, although it might be, the current might be changing, but up until now, it has been very much in favor of the 12-step process, which sort of is consistent with this idea that some things don't change, right? Because the, the, the very foundation of the 12-step process is that once an addict, always an addict, this is who you are by definition. And and I think that for I have had clients uh, where that really has worked and done tremendous, uh, they've made tremendous changes in their lives because they bought into the 12-step system and they followed it and they, they got a sponsor, they go to meetings and they really have made real changes. But I've had other clients who have, who have seen that as uh, an oppressive label and not only not been helpful to them, but it's almost uh, as if that they made they also made progress, but in different ways and without, without accepting that. And I, to me, again, I have, this is not a study and I haven't done any, any type of empirical studies on whatsoever, but there's something about the changes that someone who makes it, uh, who makes those changes with, within addiction uh, on their own or with, you know, using a different, more open-minded system about addiction than the 12 step system that seems to, at least on the outside, look more like change. Than, than the 12-step process. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that, whether you, whether you think there's a difference or is that just, or am I being fooled by the, by the fact that they're operating outside of, the, outside of the, uh, the norm? Okay, so my first reaction, to be blunt, is that you're not being fooled, Rabbi. They're being fooled, okay? So essentially what I find is that AA is obviously a religion-based program, despite the way they like to present themselves. In fact, some, some of my from clients find it like a, quite uh, um, amazing that I send them somewhere which is like a Goyesha philosophy, okay? So just to start with that. I, I find that people who take exception to the, um, um, the AA um, uh, methodology as patients basically are rebelling or they're, they're reacting against the label 
I want to be a non-addict. Don't tell me that I'm going to keep being an addict, in quotes, all my life, even though I won't be using. They find that very difficult. They find that abhorrent. And they basically come from what I consider a, a naive, positive belief about the, the, um, the good potential of people that they have the capacity to change. Okay? They're not Freudians. They're people who have hope for themselves and for others. Um, I find um, that often either they flop and they don't go through with it, or if they do, it's at the expense of a decompensation of their entire relationship and family structure. So I am not optimistic about none um, AA changes that occur in this field. I, I just want to add something that I, I have a trump card over here over you two as a rabbis, okay? Because you guys specialize with people who are close and betrothal, right? I have quite a contingent of, um, shall we say, uh, followers who are what call themselves Chosrim B'She'ela. In other words, these are people who were um, raised FFBs or at least have been from for many, many years and then go away from it. So again, with my characteristic uh, experience, I'm dealing with people who have problems and I generalize from there. So again, I have a stilted database. You know, part of what we have been... Um... I guess specializing in, right, Rabbi Skase is, is exactly who Dr. Judy is talking about, right? Part of, maybe they haven't yet uh, jumped completely into the, um, you know, to the life of non-religious, but I think we have actually been, especially at the yeshiva, I think we've had a lot of experience uh, with that, Rabbi Skase, more than myself, obviously, um, in that area of people who have, um, who are disgusted by, have been ill-served, by what their their training and their and their learning and, and what their parents and schooling have taught them, and they are actually searching for something else, um, and and they're at the cusp of of jumping in. So I think we've had that. Well, I, I, let me let me jump in with that. Uh, you know, it happens to be that the majority of our student body are, are just yeshiva guys or or, or Heimish guys who from Hasidic background who just want to get a skill to be able to go out and learn a living, uh, and recognize that in the yeshiva system that they're in, they're not going to be able to do that while staying in yeshiva. But yes, we have had what you're talking about, um, Rabbi Kivalevich, obviously. And, but more than that, I mean, I, I on my own, have worked. I, I gave a shear for about three years to uh, women uh, in, in Muncie who were uh, um, from, the, from the from world who have tremendous, tremendous questions and are Jose uh, Bishela in that sense. Um, I think in today's world, um, there isn't a from Jew alive who's not one step away from being Chozer B'Shela because uh, we cannot stop the information age. And um, there is a lot of information out there that raises a lot of She'elot, to, to, uh, to put it bluntly. And uh, to, to pretend that somehow we have the answers to all of those questions, I think is unhelpful. But what I will say is that, uh, and I, I think, uh, Dr. Junior, you'd probably agree with this, that it's, it, it's very difficult to tease apart uh, um, you know, what part of the uh, Sheila is driven by the actual question, the intellectual question itself, and what part is driven by the personality or the, you know, the experiences that they've had growing up. I once saw a movie where they were interviewing, it's not too long ago, where they interviewed somebody from Williamsburg who had gone, quote, unquote, off the derech, you know, and he said, well, uh, um, he says it had nothing to do with his childhood. His parents were wonderful. Everything was wonderful. But he had these questions that the rabbis couldn't answer, and they were supposed to know the answers. And I'm thinking to myself, as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, like, 
who told you that they were supposed to have the answers? Like, there's a, that, that's a very important question, right? So, but, you, but it has nothing to do with your childhood. Like, in your childhood, you were clearly told, you got the impression somehow that the rabbis would have all the answers. They didn't. So you were disappointed. And that is not just an intellectual pursuit of, uh, of knowledge, right? So, so I, I think it's, it, it is a fascinating um, uh, topic. When, when you speak to people like this, if you try, I've, this, I've, I've learned this by hard experience. Whenever I try to bring up the fact that, this is, that there's an emotional component and a personality component to this, they get very defensive and insist that it's purely intellectual. Uh, and my answer to that is, you know, I don't know of anything that's purely intellectual. I'm curious how you see that, Dr. Juni. I would ramp that up and I would say that I deal a lot with, uh, well, obviously, um, shall we say, well-to-do um, people who um, have problems with their religious upbringing. And I'm including um, non-Jews as well, quite devout non-Jews as well. And I, let's say I've been doing this for many years, I can count on one hand, one hand, the number of people who we're really having difficulties because of philosophical reasons, okay? I would say always there's an emotional component and the emotional component has them reacting, so to speak, irrationally and throwing out the baby with the bathwater, okay? So instead of saying, for a very concrete example, I can't stand the system, I can't stand the misogyny that goes on in the Hasidic world, I can't stand the idea that people are stifled, you say, and I don't believe in the Torah. And I... No, no, that's not what's going on. This is an emotional reaction. The people who are real philosophers, the people who are taken with Hume's skepticism, that are taken with logical positivism, the idea of not knowing what's real and what isn't coming from Aristotle, those are on one hand, they're not around. So essentially, it's always an emotional issue. And when it gets to philosophical issues, I can't help them because I say, yeah, sure, philosophically, it makes a lot of sense. But th- so we're talking about four people in my entire professional career. So I'm going further than that, not just that there's an emotional component, but that that's what it really is. But you cannot say this to people. That is very invalidating because the way they present themselves is I have problems with free will. I have problems with the way, and really they have problems with the way they've been abused or they've been stifled or they've been disrespected by their peers and they let it out on the system as a way of kicking the entire bucket. So I agree with you, but markedly so. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I I think the the upshot of this whole conversation as I sort of indicated in the beginning, is much bigger, well, to us, of course, as the, from the Orthodox Jewish perspective, we're thinking about it in terms of what we can do and how we can change. But this is, of course, the period that we're living in today. Um, if we talk about uh, whether you agree that there's something called systemic racism, is this something that can be uprooted out of a person? Uh, do people uh, specifically get used to being in a certain way or is hatred or uh, the, the idea of looking at people in, in the caste system, something that can change? Is it something that we can uh, uh, adopt uh, and understand a certain philosophy of, uh, of shared humanity that can push away the type of what people are calling today racist feelings? I'm not saying that I subscribe to it, but you are hearing about this all the time. The questions about do political candidates who, uh, who have in the past uh, embraced a certain way of thinking can they now be educated and they are now different and now they do have that type of sensitivity. And, and this has to do with incarceration, about w- what, what is the purpose of, 
of, of putting people into, into jails and can we change them in terms of, and, and, and of course it has to do with the death sentence. Do we say that, are we putting a potential murderer back out on the streets or can he change? So I think what we're talking about here, and we're not going to be able to, uh, to encapsulate it or to give anybody anything easy, but I think what we are dealing with here is one of the essential questions not only in a theological, uh, philosophical sense, or even from a clinical sense, these are the questions that I think are running through uh, our world. Uh, again, I, I don't know if you guys agree. Maybe I've said it in a in, in a larger way, but, but but I think we're hearing echoes of this uh, of this conversation everywhere right now. I certainly agree, and I think this conversation is 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 really healthy in the sense. That, you know, we live in, a, in, in this world where there seems to be this great temptation to see everything in terms of black and white. And I don't mean liter- I don't mean skin color. I just mean, you know, extremes. You know, for example, you know, just read this book and, and uh, on Amuna and, and you'll have Amuna. You know, just uh, like these easy, quick black. I mean, and, 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 and I think Amuna is very uh, germane to this conversation because it's a lifelong struggle and and the idea that somehow you can just uh, learn a couple of principles about Amun and suddenly you have it is to me I mean I don't know to me it makes no sense at all and and I think it's emblematic of sort of the way that we're approaching things so chuva oh you want to do chuva just just do chuva but, uh, but let me just say one last thing and then I, I you know and then I'm I'm out but but, but basically I think it's amazing because if you think about Yom Kippur which is the day that we we dress up as angels right we wear the kittel to symbolize purity, we, we spend the entire day in shul. We don't eat. We don't drink. We, we, we're basically, right, we get to this level that's, that's sort of angelic and greater than, than human being. Yet at the same time, if we're really honest with ourselves, we're watching the clock, right? And, 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 and at the end of the day, when we get home after Yom Kippur, we're, 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 we're definitely excited to be human beings again, to eat and to get back to our, our, our real lives. So in a sense... Maybe we could see Yom Kippur as, as sort of, you know, a day where we get a picture, a view of what it might be like to be really pure, to be really beyond our challenges, beyond our, uh, the negative aspects of, of, of who we are. But we very quickly go back at the end of the day and very happily go back to being human. And being human means being flawed. So maybe the whole picture of tshuva is this black and white thing that you just do tshuva and go through a process and then you're absolved is very simplistic, and maybe we have to actually be looking at it in a much more sophisticated way. Yeah, I, 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 and again, we all struggle with this. I, I would like to think that that moment in the Ela when you scream out Hashem Kim, that there's an authentic touching of soul that maybe you could channel even stronger and you don't go home and, and, and just wolf down the food. I, 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 would, I would hope that, that all of us, as you say, on Yom Kippur, can, can get there and say, yes, I've been to the mountain. I felt the real change. It wasn't just a bunch of, uh, I, it wasn't just that I was primed psychologically uh, from everything around me to convince myself that I was somehow a different person. Dr. J, I know your your nephew, ha- or your your son hates it when I, uh, or your nephew hates it when I refer to you that way. I know it's a, it's an old reference to one of the great basketball players of the, of the 1970s who was unparalleled. So he should not be uh, he should not be insulted that I'm referring to you as Dr. J. But what would you, we'll give you the last word on this and then we'll wrap this up. Okay, so I can just share with you, Rabbi Kivalevitz, that one of the high points of my um, spiritual year 
is davening in the great synagogue with thousands of people and saying Hashem came with that huge crowd. Oh. It's high point. But I just want to come back to something else which Rabbi Case, Case alluded to, that you can't just give somebody a little manual for truth or whatever. And I need to disagree because I think it's correct for people who have real problems with tshuva from a philosophical point of view, from a view of personal liberty or whatever. I think most people have an emotional uh, reaction to some bad experiences they've had and it colors their entire religious system. And essentially you need to address it emotionally. You almost have to give them an excuse. I'm thinking of, of a book called Permission to Believe by Rabbi Kellerman, okay? You have no idea how many patients I have who have changed from that book. And that is not the ultimate philosophical book. It does not parallel any of the major works by Socrates, trust me. But it's enough. It's there. I know um, um, David Lippmann. He was a rabbi in, in, in um, Silver Springs. He was a, uh, um, a minister, a, a member of the Knesset here. He wrote some books called, ooh, I have that, I can't remember the title right now. Again, changed, discover, beautiful book. I bought 10 copies and given to all my grandkids, okay? Beautiful book. Basically, I think that books such as Chuba for Idiots or Amuna for Idiots, I don't know if it's out yet, but maybe it's time for it to be out, can do major changes because most of the people are not looking for sophisticated philosophical treatises. They're looking for some way to frame the difficulties they had and move on. So yes, I've seen magical things happen, but not because it addresses the very essence of someone's personality. That's not the problem. The problem is is experimental mishaps. That's what often derails people to change from the system that socialized into. I'm sorry that I'm ending on a note that's not so uplifting, but I think it's practically significant. I think both of I think both Rabbi Skase and, and yourself have have shown a very realistic and important perspective on this problem. I think that both of you would probably agree, and I just sum up with this: that you know you you, you have to be on guard, especially if you have um, been bad. Let's say I'm sorry for using that term. You've done negative things. You have to be on guard for that behavior to spring up again. Um, to to think that this cannot drag you back down or cannot affect you would be would be the, in, in some sense the worst thing because then you you lend yourself to becoming um, uh, arrogant and, and thinking that that nothing can, can change you and, and this of course um, is one of the problems that we see displayed constantly by many of our public figures who who feel they can be unassailed so I think that's about it my friends I know that we've uh, uh, touched this iceberg and we've uncovered the tip of it but hopefully we also found some shining center that could, I think could, could, could emanate outward uh, and help all of us really through uh, what it means to become a better human being, a more giving human being, to be able to, to actually understand what God and, and what society and the world wants from us. That's it, my friends, uh, for this week, uh, standing in two worlds again. Thank you again, Rabbi Skates. You're always welcome, and uh, uh, I'll try to drag you in here more often. And, and, and Dr. J, Dr. Juni, we'll see you hopefully Mirza Shem. Um, I guess it's going to be in a couple of weeks from now because we're, we're almost uh, going to be coming to Yom Narayim now. But take care, my friends. We'll see you next time.
Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.